The Retrograde Approach, Episode 26, Thoracic Aortic Stinting. Welcome to the Retrograde Approach. My name is Dr. Yogi Sanskumar, and it's my absolute pleasure to introduce the one and only, the tibial hunter himself, Dr. Sam Farah. G'day, Sam. How's it going? Good, Yogi. How are you? Good, good. It's been a long time again. Apologies to everyone. Hasn't been that long. Well, we've been trying to be more, you know, um, up to date, and we've been trying to stick to a timetable, but... Um, you know, we've both been sadly a bit busier than anticipated, um, but a pleasure tonight to be able to record this episode with you, mate. Yogi, I know you have many favourite topics, but this is certainly one of them. Oh, not sure about, not sure about <laughs> that, but, but you know, thoracic aortic stenting is fascinating just because of the complexities involved, and hopefully tonight um, we can go through some of the... Um, considerations not only in terms of preoperative planning but procedural considerations as well um, that sort of go into the decision making um, and hopefully this is helpful to all the various people we encounter in the operating theater who help us do this procedure so absolutely um, and Sam I think without doubt this is one procedure that worries and concerns us more so than others uh, just because of the certain degree of uncertainty uh, associated with the procedure itself and potential complications that can arise. Yeah, that's right. It's sort of one of those uh, procedures where you really need to consider uh, whether or not what you're planning to do will work. I think there's a little bit more um, of a gray area sometimes in thoracic extending, particularly uh, when you talk about dissection, you're sort of trying to, I guess, um, foresee the future and how um, the aorta might respond to a stent graft. Yeah, I think, Sam, you've hit it on the head. It's um, There are the here and now concerns. There are also the future concerns associated with your operative plan um, that you also need to take into account. But the really thoracic aortic stenting has really revolutionised the care and management of um, the aortic disease management overall the paradigm has shifted and it's one of those areas where we share territory with the cardiac surgeons and as each year goes by um, where we end up shaking hands over the aorta uh, continues to get closer to the aortic valve which makes us more and more um, sort of at the forefront of advances uh, in stent technology Sam. Yeah, I think over our uh, career and uh, lifetime, we'll probably see a lot um, develop in this space to where we are now. Um, you know, in Victoria, we're only really starting to do um, arch branch cases. And I'm sure as time will go on, we're going to get closer and closer to the uh, aortic valve. And I'm sure um, at some point we're going to see an endovascular bentals procedure performed. Um, so it's an exciting time. Yeah, I think I think the experience in Victoria is consistent with the experience around the country. I think 
every unit is is slowly getting more experience and more comfortable with dealing with um, arch pathology and ascending pathology. Um, and I think together with our cardiology colleagues and our cardiothoracic colleagues, uh, there is so much more um, that we can continue to advance. And I, I think you're absolutely right. In our lifetime, in our careers, we will see uh, that that continue to advance. And I think also the types and timing of when these procedures are offered will also change. Um, we are still concerned about its use in more acute presentations, which we can talk about. Um, but there may come a time where this is the chosen modality in more acute pathologies within the ascending aorta, which is still relatively an uncomfortable thought process for most vascular surgeons or cardiac surgeons at this point in time. Yep. I think there was some um, recent uh, data published on um, TAVIs and basically showing almost everyone benefits from having a TAVI done, no, no matter how old and how many comorbidities you have. So uh, I think there's obviously a lot of scope for this area to continue to flourish. And, you know, if, if there's a future where everyone's getting TAVIs, if they're suitable, then, you know, at what point um, um, does that, you know, then encroach on an endovascular graft and then um, probably at some point, you know, we should just talk about sort of hybrid procedures and, um, what the landscape might look like. Yeah, I mean, it's the holy grail, isn't it, of aortic surgery to be able to treat the ascending arch and descending in a completely endovascular means. And in you know, and some people may say that's already been achieved and it's been there have definitely been some attempts at doing um that. However, we're still probably at the infancy of that, but definitely in terms of arch technology, um we have definitely got um, the ability to do that, whether that's mainstream gold standard um, right now is probably not yet uh, determined. However, what's this space? I think that's going to come in the years ahead. Absolutely. Should we get into it? Absolutely. So um, Sam, how old do you think this technology is? Um, and when was the first thoracic endovascular repair of a thoracic aneurysm performed? I'm going to say early, early nineties. Yeah. Spot on 94, uh, Michael Dake, um, and really the use of a, um, using a custom design graft at the time, but it wasn't really till the early two thousands that it became more commercially available. And that's really where the more modern experience with thoracic endografts have really come from how far we have come since that evolution in the last um, almost 20 years, it's become the primary treatment modality for a range of um, thoracic aortic pathologies. And it has, it has superseded um, open surgery um, and perhaps shifted some of those disease pathologies from a primarily cardiovascular treatment algorithm to one that's primarily vascular, vascular surgeons. And, um, and that, that has made it um, incredibly revolutionary in terms of the reduction in morbidity, but also mortality associated with these pathologies. What, um, what uh, pathology do you think has benefited most from having an endovascular repair? Um, 
I think that in different realms, you can pick out particular pathologies um, which have benefited from thoracic aortic stenting. To mine, the first pathology that has had a significant improvement has been blunt thoracic aortic injuries in that in that trauma population group. 100%. And primarily because um, this is a group of patients who are often polytrauma, who have multiple issues concurrently, who already at baseline have a high degree of morbidity and mortality. And the ability to change that from a thoracotomy clamp and sew approach to a percutaneous procedure that takes somewhere between 30 minutes to an hour from start to finish, maybe even less if you can get your team organized and ready to go. Uh, it's just absolutely been, you know, revolutionary in terms of that pathology itself. However, I think also in other th thoracic aortic pathologies, thoracic stenting has definitely revolutionized management, in particular with aneurysmal disease. Um, whether that's true, degenerative aneurysms, post-dissection aneurysms, mycotic aneurysms, pseudoaneurysms, whatever it is, thoracic stenting has been able to mitigate some of the challenges, not only with open surgery, but I think importantly with redo cardiac surgery, which is not without significant risks in itself. And then, of course, the other group being the complicated acute aortic syndromes, and the majority, of which have largely been type B dissections, but more and more we're getting into the non-A, um, non, non-B dissections as well, uh, as in those that arise off the arch, which have become more and more within the gambit of vascular surgeons, and in particular in terms of the treatment modality itself. So it's across the three, Sam, that I think we have, I think thoracic stenting have definitely has definitely shaped, um, you know, the the treatment algorithm. Would I mean? I, I don't know if you agree with that. I, I think it's I think it's very hard to pick one of the three out. Yeah, I I think um, my first instinct was that um, uh, was similar to yours, Yogi. That with blunt thoracic aortic injury, it's uh, been a game changer. I mean, as you said, you know these were previously thought economies, open surgery, and now you know you're um, repairing these with the endovascular stent graft. I guess it's debatable whether in the younger patients that's better or worse, particularly, you know, what's the, you know, long-term durability of these stents. It's a bit unknown, but um, obviously in the polytrauma setting, um, having a minimally invasive repair is often preferable. Um, but, you know, a lot is still unknown because as we know, with many of these uh, trauma patients, the follow-up is pretty poor. Yeah. And, and I think in, in our lifetime in practice, we'll see more outcome data in regards to thoracic stenting for these range of pathologies. Um, what we trade off there is the potential reduction in morbidity and mortality at the upfront for the long-term consequences of the stent grass, which as we all are aware in vascular surgery is our biggest vulnerability. And that being durability of anything that we do Fundamentally, though, I think the best way to think about particularly the trauma patients when it comes to thoracic stenting is that they are an extremist at that point. And so this is a life-saving procedure um, versus the mortality or morbidity associated with being on the table and undergoing a major 
uh, cardiothoracic procedure. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you an unscripted question, Yogi. Probably need, like probably need a soundbite to announce an unscripted qu- question like a. <laughs> Yeah, hit goat. me. What sound does a goat make? <laughs> Cow moves. What is it? Anyway, that's not the, that is not the question. The question is, given I know you have an interest in pediatric vascular surgery, do you know what they do with blunt thoracic aortic injuries in pediatric uh, populations? Yeah, I, I think the short answer to this question is, fortunately, the number of pediatric blunt thoracic aortic injuries is small and smaller than that in the adult population and predominantly because in Australia we have an incredible road safety um, education program that starts from early childhood with mandates and regulations in terms of capsules and seats and boosters that children have to be placed till a certain age. Um, and I think the education program around that has made a significant change in our behaviour towards um, compliance with uh, seat belts in cars. I think saying that, though, um, in younger children, there are significant challenges in terms of an endovascular first approach. And in, and um, my, my thought process around this would be that... Um, an endovascular first sort of technique for these patients is probably not appropriate, um, especially given um, the longevity of whatever repair you commit them to. I think there's a slight difference between that and a young adult, but in, in children, this still remains within the remit of the cardiac surgeons uh, and specifically for the reasons that you mentioned, which is the longevity and also the lack of data to, to suggest that, but also the maturity of the actual aorta itself, its diameter, and the need for it to grow with the child and the likelihood of the challenges that that faces um, if you do proceed with an endovascular first approach. Yeah, I know. It'd be very challenging trying to work out how to size it, what, what graft you would use. Well, we don't have anything off the shelf that could do that. Let's be honest. Um you know, the reality is that it's not technically feasible with what we have for thoracic stents in adults. Um, they're not made that small. Um, you're really talking about an aorta that's uh, at least half or three quarters of the size of an adult aorta. Um, and fundamentally, there's just nothing that's on the shelf or available to allow that to happen. So um uh, this is still like in, in the pediatric population group, this is still within the remit of the cardiac surgeons for those very reasons. And I guess the, the pediatric group of patients are probably fortunately a little bit more pliable um, and are able to probably tolerate um, some of the, to- some of the operative, con- you know, considerations, which makes it a little bit, um, I guess, gives, gives the cardiac surgeons that ability to do so. Um, when you think about the amazing cardiac surgery that happens in, in the pediatric population in terms of the single chamber children um, or the significant heart surgery that's performed for anomalies that occur, you can only just be amazed with how resilient and tolerant children are of cardi- cardiac surgery at that age group. That's great. A goat, a goat makes a bleat or a bar. Just for uh, just for reference, Yogi. I, uh, well, I mean, I, I think I think next time we're on, we should definitely hear Sam Farah 
Tibial Hunter, <laughs> give us the bleat. So, um, obviously, uh, aneurysmal disease is um, one of the main indications for embarking on a T-bar or a thoracic endovascular aneurysm repair. So, uh, size criteria, Yogi, we sort of mentioned this briefly before we started. What sort of size would you treat? Yeah, so the um, both the American and European guidelines would suggest um, that the guidelines, sorry, the threshold for treatment is five and a half centimeters where the annual risk of rupture is about 3% uh, per year. Um, in my, in my experience so far through training and then um, since as a consultant, um, I typically take six centimeters as the threshold for intervention. And I think for me that the annual risk of rupture at that point is close to 7% per annum. Um, but also it, it tries to weigh up the risk benefit of the potential procedural issues versus the risk of that rupture. Um, and so I uh, typically wait till six centimeters to treat thoracic aneurysms. Oh, I mean, do you, would you do anything differently, Sam? No, uh, uh, six centimeters is my um, threshold as well. But um, uh, it's interesting to note that um, some guidelines do suggest five and a half centimetres, but I think uh, most of us would um, uh, use six centimetres as our cutoff locally. Yep. So, Yogi, let's say um, um, ha- how much seal zone would you need to, to put a stent in? And then what would you do if the aneurysm started very close to the uh, left subclavian? Yeah, so um, seal is an important concept with thoracic stent grafting or any form of stent grafting. It works on the principle of having an adequate amount of vessel to allow for apposition of the stent to then prevent flow of blood around the stent with flow being diverted into the stent itself. As you can imagine, if you've got flow outside the stent, then there isn't adequate exclusion of the aneurysm and the aneurysm can continue to grow. So the concept of seal for a vascular surgeon is fundamental and it allows us to determine uh, the appropriateness of the anatomy for a stent graft and the need for adjuncts to allow this to happen. Now, seal is an interesting concept depending on the pathology being treated. Classically, for aneurysmal disease, um, seal for a thoracic stent is thought to be is 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 sort of everyone typically agrees that this is two centimeters or twenty millimeters. Now, that may be fair for aneurysmal disease, but because of the range of pathologies that we treat, that may not be necessary for other pathologies you encounter. For instance, when you have um, acute aortic syndrome especially if there is just, in, in particular with intramural hematoma with associated penetrating aortic ulcers. In that circumstance, what you want to try and achieve there is a seal without, or, or, which, is, which doesn't need um, to exclude, we just need to tack back the potential tear or injury that's occurred. So in that situation, two centimeter seal is not necessarily needed um, you don't have aneur- an aneurysm to exclude. All you want to do is prevent flow into a potential dissection that's occurred and so as such 
divert flow into the stent and then preserve uh, true luminal flow. So in that circumstance, seal of two centimeters may not be necessary. Um, so seal varies depending on what you're trying to achieve and depending on where uh, and what, and depending on what you want to treat uh, would sort of determine what that is. In an aneurysm, if you don't have adequate seal, the issue then arises of how do you achieve proximal seal? Um, and so the ideal circumstance, of course, Sam, is um, uh, a zone three pathology, right? Something distal to the left subclavian so that you don't really need to go anywhere near the left subclavian artery. But when you start encroaching uh, into, into the region close to the left subclavian artery, to achieve seal, the stent will need to go proximal or in front of the left subclavian artery. And as such, that means more stent is passing around the arch. Yep. Now, depending on the circumstance, that may mean that you cover the arch, the left subclavian artery and just get on with it, in particular with acute presentations such as trauma. However, there are certain circumstances where preservation of flow to the left subclavian artery is necessary. And that is um, where this whole conversation gets a bit more complicated. Yep. So, um, do you have any hesitation about covering the subclavian artery if you had to? Yeah. So, in an acute setting, um, I still, I'm, I still am hesitant about covering the left subclavian artery. But you've got to weigh up the risk benefit versus uh, of of doing so versus the current pathology that's threatening or that's of concern maybe before we jump into that yogi what what might be some of the issues one may encounter when covering the subclavian artery so the specific issues that can occur with coverage of the subclavian artery really takes into account uh, the risk of stroke um, in particular posterior circulation strokes associated with coverage of the left subclavian artery. The reason for this, of course, is because the left vertebral artery arises from the proximal segment of the left subclavian artery. And so yep. in the process of covering the left subclavian artery, material can embolize into that vessel and lead to that happening. Other issues, of course, include compromising blood supply to the spinal cord, and in particular, because the um, anterior spinal arteries come off the vertebral arteries, which then form part of the cascade of various blood vessels that contribute to blood supply. Um, and so it puts the patient at risk of spinal cord ischemia. Further issues that can arise include variations of upper limb ischemia. Um, the left arm is typically very tolerant um, of coverage, however, in patients with concomitant atherosclerotic disease, they can then develop more chronic symptoms, including claudication or rest pain. And in the worst case scenario, even tissue loss if there's trauma associated with the arm. Um, in specialized situations, this also poses a concern. So patients with arteriovenous fistulas or grafts, or um, in patients who have a lemograph coming often as part of um, coronary artery revascularization procedures. 
um, as this poses um, a challenge. The other group of patients that also uh, worry me a lot are those with a dominant left vertebral artery um, and as such compromising flow to that left vertebral artery compromises flow to their posterior circulation. And similarly, those patients with left vertebral arteries that end in a posterior inferior cerebellar artery and as such poses it poses issues as well. There's one more. There are also... Um, uh, or maybe more. A, one more. Uh, there, there, are, there are also a group of patients which have anomalous anatomy, which you need to take into account. Um, and so coverage of the left subclavian artery sometimes can be done um, if there's still an adequate seal with protection of an anomalous left vertebral artery arising off the arch. So that's um, in a very, very small percentage of patients. And often there isn't, a, there isn't enough seal, in which case those patients will st still need coverage of that vessel. Um, length of coverage also plays a role here. Um, particularly because of the spinal cord perfusion that arises directly off the descending thoracic aorta, which plays an important role together with the um, vertebral artery contribution. Um, and also patients who have previously had um, infrarenal aortic surgery, so they might have had some lumbar vessels ligated or oversewn and as such um, are dependent upon other sites of blood supply. And also those patients who have um, internal artic artery disease as well, which all then play a role to the broad spinal cord perfusion. Just briefly, Yogi, um, maybe worth also mentioning, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because sometimes you have to cover it to get uh, adequate seal, but sometimes when you do cover it, the left subclavian can also act as a source of um, endoleak, which can be problematic for you later. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, the... The, the subclavian artery is, is an artery to be treated with great respect. Um, you and I both know the number of times you can end up with problems that arise from the artery, but, um, you know, aiming to plug embolize the subclavian artery um, following a thoracic aortic stem graft is useful to try and mitigate that risk. However, that can be challenging when you're dealing with post-dissection aneurysms because of the potential dissection extending into the uh, um, into the left subclavian artery, but also dilation of the proximal left subclavian artery as well. So I guess um, you, you sort of touched on um, spinal cord ischemia and uh, some of the risks with um, increased stent length. Um, and you sort of mentioned some of the other risks in terms of um, causing spinal cord ischemia. Do you have any strategies you use in your practice to um, avoid it or mitigate the risks of that? Yeah, so spinal cord ischemia is definitely one of those things that as vascular surgeons we dread. Um, it's, it's never a great uh, outcome when a patient does um, suffer uh, from this complication as a result of a procedure. Um, the first thing I'd say is there's whenever any of these procedures are performed, there's a significant amount of pre-procedural planning that needs to go into play. Um, and essentially, depending upon um, the site of coverage, the length of coverage, 
and some of the other factors that we discussed before, including coverage of the left subclavian, previous open AAA repair, um, bilateral internal atherosclerotic disease. Um, this would necessitate the need for a spinal drain to try and mitigate some of the pressure that then evolves within that space um, to reduce the risk of spinal cord ischemia itself. Um, other strategies, of course, is really having a, an ex excellent multidisciplinary team involved, both from anesthetics and intensive care. Uh, this is a cohort of patients who you want to maintain um, the mean arterial pressure up through um, their procedure, but also um, immediately post-operatively, making sure they're adequately, um, their hemoglobin is adequately um, monitored and maintained at over um, over 100, and also ensuring um, that they've got adequate oxygen supplementation through the procedure and post-operatively. Now, there have been various adjuncts to that, of course, including the use of corticosteroids, um, which we don't routinely use in our unit, Sam. Um, some units also measure evoked potentials. Again, that's not something that we do routinely in our unit. And more recently, we heard from Dr. Uh, Suku Han talking about preoperative revascularization of large lumbar vessels from the profunda using prosthetic graft, which seems incredible. Uh, again, not something that we do routinely. Again, right. the other... Sorry, the other concept also is constructing graphs that allow you to maintain spinal cord perfusion and coming back at us in a staged manner uh, to to fit to occlude. And so that's another way of managing it, but also um, staging any thoracic procedure, especially if it's multi-leveled, to try and mitigate that risk. Yeah, I think every time um, I've seen spinal cord ischemia following a endovascular procedure, whatever that might be, it's always been a long and arduous procedure. So um, length of procedure should be minimised as much as possible, especially with um, prolonged um, periods of hypotension. The other one that was um, sort of discussed recently was as well, Yogi, and I don't know if you've seen this, but preoperative coiling of lumbar arteries have also seen described i've never done it in my own practice but another interesting um idea i guess just to um um uh i guess uh condition the spinal cord um prior to um embarking on a thoracic uh, endovascular repair yeah this this concept of um ischemic conditioning of the spinal cord is fascinating um i think it takes an incredibly skilled interventionalist to be able to selectively cannulate Yep. these individual arteries and coil. But the question then that always arises out of that is how many to coil and what what to coil? And then what about the artery of Adenkovitz, um, which uh, is a an artery that positions itself in various levels uh, of the th uh, thoracic aorta and plays such a significant role in terms of maintaining perfusion to the spinal cord itself? Yeah, that's right. I I I manage to cannulate lumbers all the time. You, know, you just I never want to actually mean to. <laughs> that that is the story of vascular surgery: being able to do something when you actually mean to do it, and um, uh, the irony of not being able to do it when it's not necessary. 
Yeah, I accumulate it all the time when I do an up and over Andrew game. Okay, moving over, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> Mate, you don't you don't come up and over. You're the tibial hunter. You're always down here. No, no, I, I believe it or not, Yogi. Sometimes I do exercise some caution and um, do the right thing. <laughs> He's speechless. He's absolutely speechless. Anyway, go for it. So, Yogi, um, um, do you, when you do the procedure, do you have any way to um, monitor the patient's uh, spinal cord perfusion or uh, do you just crack on, do the procedure and see how things uh, pan out at the end? Yeah, I think the we don't routinely measure um, spinal cord perfusion. Um and based on the extent of coverage or the site of coverage and with the other factors discussed, um, we would just use a spinal drain as a means of off- offsetting that pressure and just continuing with the procedure. I think there's no reliable method of uh, keeping an eye on perfusion, um, at least nothing that's been routinely done in practice. I'm sure there's some experimental work um certain other sort of measures that could be considered include uh, infrared spectro uh, spectroscopy monitoring however um we don't routinely do that in my unit um and the use of transcranial doppler and eeg again nothing that we do routinely uh in our unit um but i'm not certain as to whether you've seen anything differently sam uh, I used to work with an anaesthetist who would use the um, NIRS uh, monitoring. So this is a near infrared spectroscopy. Um, and so he would put the uh, monitors on the patient's flank. And a couple of times we did actually see some um, changes in the monitoring as the, after the graph went in. Um, but, I mean, look, the treatment for that is to if there's a spinal draining to drain some fluid and then to get the blood pressure up. So those are things you could probably potentially just do anyway without needing the monitoring. Just probably the simplest one we, we do is just ask for the blood pressure to be elevated after you've deployed the craft. Yeah. So transient reduction in blood pressure to allow for deployment, but um, return to an elevated blood pressure as soon as feasibly possible. So I might just um, open that, sort of explore that a little bit, Yogi. The blood pressure um, during the procedure, you you sort of said you'd then put it back up. So what do you do with the blood pressure when you're deploying a graft? Yeah, so the biggest challenge with deploying a graft within the um, um, aortic arch or proximal descending thoracic aorta is the potential risk of migration as you're opening a graph with forward arterial pressure. Now, various companies have tried to overcome this, but the problem is as you open a graph with forward arterial pressure, there is a risk that they would, as the stent is being slowly opened, blood fills the graph that's partially open and pushes that forward, this idea of creating a windsock. Some companies, one particular company has evolved um, that idea with um, patenting the idea of essentially opening the stent from distal to proximal, but also opening the stent to 
prior to then opening it to completion. And these are strategies to try and mitigate that risk. What we do traditionally, irrespective of the stent craft of choice, is position the stent where we want to deploy it, institute a means of reducing blood pressure, and that typically is a blood pressure target of less than 100 millimetres of mercury. Once that's achieved, the stent's deployed, and then the blood pressure is allowed to return back to normal. Now, Sam, there are multiple ways in which blood pressure can be reduced during a procedure. What are some of those ways that you have seen or are aware of? Um, there's probably three. One is to ask the anesthetist to reduce the blood pressure uh, by administering either vasodilating agents or anesthetic agents. Um, the second would be um, to um, do cardiac overpacing. So this is basically uh, reducing, increasing the heart rate to reduce the stroke volume um, and therefore drop the blood pressure. Um, I'm personally not a huge fan of that. It takes a bit of time to set up cardiac pacing wise at the start of the case. Um, you need to have a specialist cardiac anesthetist involved and then there's always a risk of rate-induced myocardial ischemia. Um, so like in my mind, the last thing you want to do in all this is to induce a cardiac event. Um, the third would be um, reducing the preload and the way that's commonly described is to basically um, inflate a large balloon in the inferior vena cava and that basically just reducing the amount of blood getting to the heart and that drops the blood pressure. Um, that's a relatively effective way of doing it. Um, the one disadvantage is that, you know, while you're deploying a graft, there's then something else to think about at the same time. Um, and so you need a second operator there to be man manning that while you deploy your stent graft. Um, my personal feelings are that the newer devices are so good that that's less of a prerequisite. Um, uh, even we recently did an arch branch case at uh, the Austin and just simply reducing the blood pressure was sufficient for that. So I think the days of needing to do all these sort of extravagant things are perhaps ending with the caveat being, you know, if you're really getting close to um, zone one or zero, then perhaps, yeah, sure, you might need to do some of those things. Yeah, and, and so the only other technique I'm aware of is a prolonged or sustained Valsalva maneuver to try and reduce blood pressure. And yes, I think you're right. I think technology is a, is advancing in terms of um, stent technology, but also our understanding as vascular surgeons has allowed us to take that step forward too. Yep. Um, Sam, I think maybe it's worthwhile talking about some of the technical aspects of um, stent graft deployment. Um, so once you've achieved, so you've got your patient, Sorry, uh, I apologize, Sam. I'm going to bring back some fellowship vibes here. Yeah. You've got the patient on the table there. Patient's asleep. Patient's asleep under a general anesthetic. You've already done your timeout. Consent's correct. And um, the anesthetist says to you, Sam, please get started. How do we begin this procedure? Uh, so hopefully I've uh, reviewed the imaging first. Um, yes, Sam, they're on the table. They're on the table. Oh, you're gonna you're gonna throw me right in the deep end. 
I'm just bringing you back some vibes. I, I, I can see that. So what am I What am I actually doing? What am I fixing? A dissection, an aneurysm, a PAU? Let's just say you're doing a, a, a thoracic aortic stent for aneurysmal disease. So um, do you want to talk about sizing or just straight into the... Straight into it. Straight okay. into the procedure. I think there's some procedural things worth discussing and then we can go back a little bit. All right. So let's just say I pick my stent. It's at the back. Rep's there. Um, it's in their hot, hot hands, ready to go. So uh, patients asleep, I, I do this with an IDC. Um, I try and avoid a spinal drain as much as humanly possible. Um, I prefer the patient to be intubated um, with a ETT. Um, and maybe we'll talk about why that's sometimes important. Um, I then um, after I've decided which side I want to advance my graft, usually that's preferably the patient's right I put in a six French sheath on the right and then two pro guides to pre-close in an eight French sheath. And then on the left side, I just use one five French sheath. And the purpose of that side is um, just to advance the pigtail catheter. Um, if I'm really close to the subclavian with my deployment, I will sometimes consider um, advancing a pigtail from the subclavian from the arm. So I find just being able to mark it's really easy. Uh, really useful, but also the position of the ETT is often pretty close to the left subclavian once you've got the angle, <clears throat> the um, C arm in the correct position. So the in the tracheal tubes often a good landmark. Um, I heparinize the patient usually 70 to 100 units per kilogram of heparin. Um, wait for that to circulate, and then once I've identified where I want to deploy the graft, advance it from the right. I then ask the anesthetist to reduce the blood pressure. Uh, deploy the graft in the perfect position as usual, and then uh, confirm with another DSA that um, the aneurysm has been fixed. Uh, for aneurysmal disease, I would um, uh, balloon the proximal distal lens and any overlap if I've had to use two pieces, and then uh, which I wouldn't do for dissection, generally, generally speaking. So just to go back, um, when you do your initial diagnostic angiogram of the aortic arch, how do you do that and what angle do you set the um, the CR at? So depending on how close the uh, seal zone is to the left subclavian, I would have decided am I coming from, am I advancing the pigtail from the um, or femoral access? Um, but uh, let's just say I'm coming by the groin, I'm going to advance it all the way to the arch, proximal to where um, the stent's going to be deployed. I usually get into an LAO angle somewhere between 30 and 60 typically uh, degrees. Um, and then for the first run, I usually give a good bolus of contrast at 20 mils at 20 mils per second with a breath hold. And so you do that through a, a pump injector. Um, yep. One of the big issues with um, doing this sort of procedure is the risk of air embolization and the risk of stroke um, associated with the delivery of contrast. Um, is there a way that you could mitigate that risk um, interoperatively? I mean, you're always checking that everything's flushed, all the bubbles um, are out, and then when you're taking wires out, you're careful to flush the wires as they come out as well. Um, I think um, part of that is actually there's a few things. Number one, you got to be careful with your uh, stiff wire. Oh, sorry, I, told, I forgot to tell you. I'm going to pass the stiff wire up. 
But um, you got to be careful with your wire that it's actually uh, navigating nicely around the aortic arch. Using the uh, thoracic lundiquist, uh, generally speaking, and also ensuring that the graft itself is well flushed. I think mm. some of these strokes are potentially just air that's trapped within the graft that's then uh, released as you deploy. Yeah, and that's because of the process of sterilization and the way um, the stent grafts are packaged that innately there's some dead space. Um, and so the grafts are prepared by flushing uh, with heparinized saline within the chamber um, to try and remove or expel that air after the sterilization process has occurred prior to their delivery to the hospital. But yep. um, there was, there's definitely been some research demonstrating the amount of gas or air that's released as a result of stent graft deployment. And then, of course, there have been some advances, including the use of a second flushing port, the use of CO2 flushing, um, but also the use of an underwater seal to try and reduce the risk of air within the circuit. Yep. And and all of these are techniques and strategies that are utilised to try and mitigate um, some of the issues in particular with periprocedural complications. Now, Sam, one of the biggest challenges with um, stent graft deployment can relate to the acuity of the arch itself. Um, and so that's the, the angle of the aortic arch. What is the, what is the complication that can occur associated with that? And what is the sort of radiological feature demonstrated when you, when you find you've got a, a steep um, aortic arch angle? Um, so the issue there is uh, getting the device around the corner. Um, what can happen if the angle is very steep is that the graft is deployed, but in the inferior portion of the arch, the graft is actually not in contact with the wall. And then we have this uh, bird beaking phenomenon. What uh, bird beaking, the, the beak itself is the angle between the um, inferior border of the aortic arch and the graft itself forms like a, a, a triangle. Um, and the issues with that in time, particularly if it's dissection, you can then induce a retrograde type A dissection. That's where the dissection uh, goes uh, inferiorly back towards the aortic valve and that's a fairly catastrophic uh, complication um, if that were to occur. Uh, were you aware of other issues related to bird beaking yogi that I've missed? I guess the other thing that can happen is inadequate seal between yeah, the stent graft and the wall like, and, and the needing and the need to potentially then um, uh, a need for a more proximal stent to allow for the uh, stent to oppose the aortic wall itself. Yep. But again, these are some of the advantages with the newer grafts, like some of them you can get, allow them to take the corner a bit better. Some you can even angulate. Yeah, the sort of the ability to conform the graft yep. um, has has revolutionised some of these issues that have been a problem in the past. Not mentioning any graphs in particular. Not mentioning any graphs. Now, um, I guess just so that we're clear, what are some of the complications that can occur with thoracic aortic stenting? Um, well, you just open Pandora's box yogi as you like to do, but, uh, I guess anything and everything, um, 
I would say that these patients are generally uh, higher risk uh, medically from the get-go, so there would be uh, a risk of mortality associated with any thoracic um, procedure. This can be acutely in the, sh in the short term from anything from a cardiorespiratory renal failure complication um, to something that may occur late, like a stent graft infection, for example. Um, I think we've already spoken about stroke, but there is um, not a... Uh, insignificant stroke risk. I think, you know, somewhere in the ballpark of three to eight percent yogi we had uh, looked up. Um, and you got to remember that apart from the air and the graft, a lot of these patients will have what we would describe as shaggy aortas or um, aortic arches with significant atheroma. And despite, you know, trying to be super careful with uh, manipulating wires and things, unfortunately, um, with many of these things, the wire will just sit where it wants to sit. And so, you can try your best, but um, it will just do what it wants to do. Um, we've touched on spinal cord ischemia, so paraplegia, you know, that's the um, kind of, I don't know, maybe you'd call them one of the more dreaded complications. Um, uh, although, we, you know, we drain fluid, increase blood pressure, a lot of that, if that does occur, it's often hard to get it back, although there is some um, success. Um, and then, you know, complications related to all vascular procedures. Um, you've got um, embolization, thrombosis, access site uh, troubles. Um, and then one we've also mentioned is, you know, the retrograde um, aortic dissection. Yeah, and um, other other challenges are similar to stent grafts and other positions, including migration, fracture, and uh, one of the, and collapse, which can also occur with thoracic stent grafts. Um, a lack of achieving a seal for aneurysmal disease is a problem. And as you described before, Sam, so endoleaks pre present a particular issue as well. Yeah, I mean, like, as, as we've sort of alluded to, like, a lot of these thing, things are, um, all these devices are evolving rapidly and um, sometimes the rate of uh, innovation outpaces um what's the what's the diplomatic way to say this yogi outpaces the uh uh safety the, profile or the clinical need for a surgical solution yeah and then so there have been you know cases of devices being pulled from the market because despite everyone's best intentions have been issues related to the graph that's only become apparent you know, 12 months after deployment. And at that stage, it's pretty hard to do anything about it, right? Well, without committing someone to a significant and large operative intervention. Yeah. And um, so while, while some of us may think um, some surgeons are a bit, um, a bit more conservative about using the same device over and over again, I can see the advantage to using something you know is going to have success and work in the long term uh, absolutely and i think that it you know i think in in this in this specialty that we're involved in familiarity with the material and technology that you use allows you to provide the best um, health care to the patients we look after yep Sam, 
this this is a fascinating area of discussion just because of the range of complexity involved and the ever evolving technology that's that's used to look after patients with thoracic aortic pathology we've only briefly ch- touched on some of the challenges tonight but hopefully that provides an overview of the thought process and thinking that's involved and that goes into uh, decision-making. Um, I, like you, Sam, are excited about what the future holds in thoracic aortic stenting, predominantly because of the extension across the arch and towards the aortic valve, which is really revolutionary for the care of patients with concurrent uh, pathologies, which is becoming more and more of the issue. Um, we're seeing people who are more unwell, more, more comorbid, and th- that itself poses many challenges to their own health. An argument could be made that perhaps their fitness, uh, it's, the fitness for surgery can be questioned. However, the reality is that ultimately technology is going to allow us to help deliver care to as many patients as feasibly possible in the safest way that we can do that. Nicely said, Yogi. Um, I think there's a lot we haven't touched on. Like we could probably have um, a long discussion about aortic dissections and um, um, although I'm not sure I've got all the answers there, but um, um, obviously it's an expanding field and uh, all these new devices and um, not just arch branches, but, you know, people are doing laser fenestrations and all this pretty amazing stuff. So and uh, the imaging is getting more advanced you know we've got um, fusion technology now um, really playing a part in how these devices are implanted and um, yeah it's going to be an interesting sort of next um, five to ten years in this field that's for sure all those topics we could touch on individually and as you said sam the um the answers to all of them um uh, can be individualized depending on where you are and what you believe is the treatment algorithm for it um, so definitely things that we can pursue into the future, Sam. Thanks, Yogi. Thanks, Dr. Farah, Tibial Hunter.